Race to zero! We're very excited to be having this conversation with you. And the first thing to say is, welcome to Outrage and Optimism. Yay! All right. <laughs> My name is Tom Rivet Karnak. And I'm Paul Dickinson. And we don't have Christiana Figueres here today. She's gone back to Costa Rica. But we are so excited to be bringing you this special conversation from COP26. Now, in a minute, we'll be inviting the guests to the stage, and Paul will do an introduction. But I just wanted to start with a few words of context about what we're going to talk about. First, you should know this is a live podcast recording. We are speaking to many people elsewhere. It'll be released tomorrow, so we're really grateful that you're joining us. And I just wanted to give a little recap on the last couple of days. Um, I don't know about you, but it's been a real roller coaster for us. When we arrived in Glasgow on Sunday with Christiana, we saw what was coming out of the G20. Boris Johnson giving every indication that he was a schoolboy who'd forgotten to do his homework and this was the last moment and he was sort of panicked in front of the camera. But since then, it's been really remarkable. We have been so impressed at what's happened. I mean, just think about the last few days. The commitments that have come out are now taking us, it looks like, fully implemented, there's a lot of work left to go, to 1.8 degrees of warming. Now, if you told us that six years ago in Paris, we would have bitten your arm off. This is an amazing step forward. And of course, we can always say there's more to go, there's more we need to do, but actually we should be very excited already. And it's only day four. Day four or day three? It's day four, day four. Okay, so um, today, today is energy day here at COP26, and we're gonna be having a conversation with four remarkable people who have created one of the most transformative breakthroughs that um, that we have already seen come out this week. So we're going to have Per Hegenis, the CEO of the IKEA Foundation, Rebecca Shirley, Director of Research at WRI, Andrew Steer, the President and CEO of the Bezos Earth Fund, and Rad Shah from the Rockefeller Foundation. If I can invite them all to come to the stage, and this will be ably moderated by really the best host of Outrage and Optimism, Paul Dickinson. So I hope you enjoy. <laughs> Paul, over to you. I just want to start off by saying that uh, this is about systemic breakthrough, and uh, Tom and I are very excited. We've raised $100 million this morning to make a systemic breakthrough. We found a Silicon Valley company that can uh, print on both sides of a badge. How about that? Yeah? Okay, thank you. Um, so look, we are here on a very auspicious day. The, uh, the Global Alliance has is, is, is announced this extraordinary um, 1.5 billion, seeking to crowd in a great deal more. I would like to start off by asking Andrew, if I may. Um, you said around the, this extraordinary announcement that by bringing together leading technical experts alongside financial agents, that we can create a sort of significant uptake in the level of energy, jobs, and, and opportunity in many developing countries. And can I ask you how you've arrived here, this extraordinary position you have as the largest climate philanthropist in the world, what's brought you here and what are you looking forward to with this initiative? Well, I'm not actually the largest philanthropist, <laughs> <laughs> but I have the privilege of uh, working for uh, the Bezos Earth Fund um, as their CEO. And it, this is an exciting time and I would commend my fellow panelists for a really astonishing, I mean, Raj, you deserve 
enormous uh, credit for this. So, I mean, at one level, things are going great, aren't they? We're expanding renewable energy, we're increasing access, we're decommissioning coal. At another level, we are hopelessly too slow. We've got to go from, um, what, 28% um, renewable energy in, in, in the grid at the moment to 70% by 2030. Um, we've got to uh, reduce the amount of uh, coal generation from, what, 39% today to about 2% by 2030. And we've got to bring power to the 800 million that don't have it. I mean, this is, and we're nowhere close to the pace. And the question is, why aren't we going faster, given that we now know that renewable energy is cheaper, given that we know the rate of return of electrifying Africa or electrifying those that don't have it is amazing. And the reason is there are just some barriers that have never been removed. So you've got a whole bunch of really great organizations from the World Bank to IRENA to the Asian Bank to uh, NGOs like WRI doing wonderful, wonderful work, but it is not adding up. And the beautiful thing about the Global Energy Alliance is saying, why don't we try and make it add up? Why don't, we, why don't we put together enough grant resources from philanthropy that we can use them for three really transformative things? One, the politics and the plans and the policies. Second, the pipeline of really financeable projects. And third, the risk management and the subsidization that will leverage incredible change. And it's been unbelievable to see the receptivity to this from the big historic organizations like the World Bank to the new nimble international solar alliance types to the RMI types. Everyone's saying, yes, we are now at a pivot point in history, or at least we need to be. We are willing to do things differently. If we don't do things differently, we will fail. That deserves a round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> um, Rebecca, if I can ask you to hold the microphone ridiculously close uh, as you speak. Uh, you are from the World Resources Institute, uh, ably steered for many years by Andrew. Uh, sorry to lose him, but you know. Um, but you are something of an expert in uh, renewable energy, particularly in Africa, but also in other countries. Can I ask you about barriers, actually, the difficult question. What are the biggest barriers to delivery um, in terms of clean energy, a just transition, jobs, and even the role of government? It's a brilliant question. Thanks so much for having WRI at this, at this event and for asking that question and shining some light on Africa um, and from the energy point of view. Um, your question about, you know, sort of the challenges of, of delivering energy access, they're, they're multifold. If we're being frank about this from a technical point of view, really, and I'm coming at this from a, from a, from a data point of view as, there, as uh, doing research with WRI, these are actually very difficult markets to serve, right? Um, we're thinking about electrification of very widespread, low-density communities. Um, in advanced electricity markets, we had massive subsidies to do this, right? We think about back to the Rural Electrification Act in the US in the 1930s that allowed for low-interest loans to be sort of the, you know, channeled through cooperatives, many of which are still around today, um, so that we had universal electrification by the 1950s. So that's, we're talking about 70 years, right, of a, of a history of full electrification and consumption. So, so that's, the, that's what we're trying to accomplish right now in Africa. So it's actually a very difficult exercise. And then you layer on top of that that these are low consumption 
communities, right? On average, if you combine both rural and urban households in, in, in Africa, the average is something about 30 kilowatt hours per month. That's less than an average US household is using per day. And so thinking about, exactly, so thinking about, you know, the returns on the investment after you've built all of this expensive infrastructure to get out there, the returns are, are, are marginal. So it's actually a quite difficult exercise to accomplish. And I think that's where the element of financing comes in and where the element of technology comes in. The, the SE for All estimates that the budget is something like about 30 billion annually that would be needed between now and 2030 to deliver access in Africa. And that's actually not that much when we think about it, right? I was listening to one of the sessions yesterday that was saying, that's less than we spend on ice cream annually oh, as, a, as, a, as a world. So it's, it's really not that much when we think about it. But the are gap... We spending, yeah, no, we're not spending <laughs> too much on ice cream. I mean, we are, but... It, it's just, it's it's ridiculous. Not it's a joke, we, but right. it's, it's like kind of not funny, right? Kind of not funny. And not that we shouldn't spend money on ice cream, but just to put it in context, that we're not talking about a whole, it's not a, it's not a lot. Um, and you'd be surprised with that figure how big the gap is, especially in countries where that are the growth hubs right now, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, Kenya, Nigeria, the, the gap between what's needed and what's actually being committed and then what's being dispersed it's, it's sort of mind-boggling. Um, and so those are some of the challenges around um, you know, energy access delivery, which is why partners like, like the Bezos Fund and, and Rockefeller are so important in this fight. Um, but then to your question, and then I'll stop about sort of what can be done from a transitions point of view. I always find that this word transitions, and we're talking about the African context, is a bit peculiar because the transition would suggest a metamorphosis of some type or a pivot from one state to another. And for, for Africa, many of these countries are not so much thinking about a pivot, but how do we from now think about building systems that, that will be compatible with a low carbon economy in the near term, medium term and longer term future? Or some countries are thinking about, you know, we've actually got a very green grid as it is. I'm coming from Kenya, from Nairobi, Kenya, where we've got lots of geothermal, lots of hydropower. So these are actually quite green grid. Now, how do we continue to grow these economies and maintain and sustain without having to go to other types of resources? And then there are other countries that are thinking, you know, we've got these resources in the ground that we have every right to develop. How do we do so with an exit strategy in mind? How do we do so thinking and considering that in the near and medium term, there may not be funders for the kind of resources that we would like to develop? And so it's actually not one transition story. There are many transition stories and that nuance becomes so important in the African context. So Andrew taught me the rule of three, so I'll just say three things very quickly on what can be done from a transitions point of view. One, I think that we need to be talking more about the, the, the data and the evidence side of things. We have this talk from a moral, from a moral standpoint a bit too much and we start to kind of have to move into the implementation, right? So we need to have evidence-based plans for how do we actually transition in a sober way, in a meaningful way from, from you know, for, for I'm seeing, I'm seeing the, 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 the absolutely yes. How do we actually just, now do this transition? This is silent clapping from the audience here, by the way. <laughs> but the plans, so, we, so we're moving from the moral conversation to implementation. That's number one. Number two is keeping access centered in this conversation. And I don't mean the household electrification definition of access. Again, coming from Kenya, we've seen so many pilots, so many programs about, about electricity um, access delivery. And a lot of them end up with, we've you've got the meters, but a connection does not mean that I 
have the ability to pay for that power or that I can own the resort, the, 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 the appliances that, that I can use that power for or that I can run a business or a factory or a farm with that power. So we need to think about access now, not just from a household point of view, but serving commercial and industrial enterprises. And once we're doing that and thinking about access in a sort of a, a larger way, we're going to be able to sustain the, these, these economies through, through greener pathways. And the third, I'm always going to come back to the finance and the support. Because I think if we're that's being... That's what we're here to talk that's about. That's what we're here to talk about. And if we're being really honest, a lot of the world has developed um, and has been able to benefit from African resources, right? In seen and unseen ways. Enough said there. And so there's sort of a, an imperative, not just from a humanitarian point of view, but from a point of view that these are the economies that sustain the world. These are the economies of the future. Um, the UN is saying that by, by 2050, one in every four people on the planet is going to be African. So these rooms are going to look very different in our lifetime, right? So these are the economies of now. These are the economies of the future. And so there's more than just a humanitarian argument for why the world needs to sort of get behind Africa from a financing point of view. So those are my three thoughts on the transition. Bravo, bravo. How does it go? Nobody's safe until everybody's safe. And 759 yes. million people with no electricity, that doesn't work. So can I invite you, Per? I'm going to just sort of point out that you've been CEO of the IKEA Foundation since 2009. Uh, you've expanded to 45 countries. You're on the board of many NGOs. And I have a very sort of specific question. You're, you're deeply committed as an organization uh, to SDG 7, uh, Affordable Energy for All. I mean, can you explain how the alliance, the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet, was conceived and how seed capital from different kind of financiers can de-risk? And what have you seen on the ground that's propelled you to this? Well, thank you, Paul. Uh, first of all, it was conceived because um, smart people worked with Raj to set up this idea that we can create an alliance where um, we would basically create something that's an unprecedented collaboration between governments, development banks, multilateral banks, the private sector, and philanthropies to actually do something that hasn't been done before in a proper way, as Andrew was relating to. I mean, we can do this. It's just a question of how we finance it, right? And this is an opportunity for us to actually do that by going country by country, working with the governments and the infrastructure and the, the different uh, operators in those countries, uh, create a plan by country to accelerate access to renewable energy. And by doing that, as we have set out our, our plan to provide renewable energy to a billion people living in Poor, uh, poverty and poor, poor communities, and at the same time, which is really important to me too, we, we can cut 4 billion tons of carbon, which is really important in the race to, to net zero, obviously. And on top of that, we would create jobs, 150 million jobs. Now, I, I'd like to bring this to sort of what does this mean for an individual, right? Because we talk about access to energy in, in, in numbers, but what does it mean to be in a position where you have no energy at all? You know, I remember many years ago, I, people know I've I done a lot of work with refugees in Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia and in the Middle East. And I remember coming to, to the Astrak refugee camp in Jordan uh, many years ago. And, and you realize this is an, a refugee camp built in the middle of the desert. It it's consists of metal containers. And 50,000 people live in metal containers in the scorching heat. Sorry, right, please, yeah. and they have no access to energy. So I thought, well, 
this is, this is bad for a number of reasons. First of all, half the time of the day it's dark, right? Or it's dark half the time of, of the 24-hour cycle. It's very dangerous for women to go out, that, out there at the dark because it's very dark. Deserts get very dark. There's no, absolutely no opportunity to put on a fan, to, to have a fridge, to have an opportunity to, 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 to actually store food for more than a few hours. There's no opportunity to actually do anything to create a business and create uh, an income for yourself. So we decided just as a foundation that we build a solar park and we, we finance the necessary uh, development of the grid to actually provide power to these people. Now, what happened? Well, first of all, it's safe to go around at night. It's, it's lighted. Yes. It's possible for um, mother and father to go and buy food, put it in the storage, and, and, and have it for a few days and be more economical about the food. It's possible for kids to watch TV, maybe, if they can afford to buy a TV. It's possible to put up a little fan so you can sort of uh, live through this scorching heat, which will develop inside these containers anyway. And more importantly, you see all these small businesses popping up because suddenly there's access to energy and, 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 and access to electricity means that you can start small businesses and you can actually thrive as a community. So it totally changed this uh, community. It wasn't that expensive to me. But basically, refugee camps anywhere in the world has no energy. And that's basically uh, the base point. And then whatever we can do as a philanthropy, we helped in different ways in different situations to actually build access to energy. But, you know, it's not the rule, it's the exception. Let me give another example, if you're okay with that. Because we've done so much work with access to energy in, in, in different parts of the world. I remember visiting... Um, are you okay? Yes. I remember visiting um, a potter in, uh, in Karnataka in India. Raghu was his name. He actually is a potter. He had three people employed. Two people who needed to, he needed to actually turn the wheel, the pottery wheel, and then one person was employed full time to keep the kiln going, the heat going. Uh, our partner um, came in and provided access to, to energy through, through solar. Uh, that enabled uh, Ragu to actually have uh, an energy powered wheel. It wasn't only a wheel where he didn't need two people anymore, but it was also an energy power pottery wheel that he could adjust the speed and therefore make better products. Now, secondly, uh, our partner also produced uh, a machine, a blencher that will help him um, manage the clay, I mean, mix the clay, which is really hard work if you have to do it by hand. Thirdly, they also developed a way to, to create a solar-powered uh, effective kiln. So suddenly, uh, Ragu is on his own producing 300% more income and with three employees less and the employees can go on to do the same thing. To me, this is just what's changed. It's not only about kids getting the opportunity to, to, to study at night. This is about changing a community forever, building the economy, growing the economy, and making it possible for people to, to make a living for themselves. Because if they can, they will stay where they are. This is what they want to be. They want to be there in their community, and we want to do whatever we can to actually address the root cause of the problem in many countries in Africa, and that's the fact that people can't afford to make a living. If we provide access to energy, it will make such a difference. And I'm so happy that we can contribute to that by 
through the new alliance that we have built together. And I think this is going to be the beginning of something really wonderful that we will have many more partners coming in to uh, contribute with us and to actually um, help build this alliance and grow this alliance and, and do that until we have ne reached net zero and everyone has access to energy. That reserves a round of applause. I don't know if anyone was, was like me, kind of uh, at the Olympics, I can't remember the first time it happened, but just completely tearing up when the refugees arrived. You know, <laughs> makes you think. Thank you for that. A, a very moving and inspiring work. Um, I'd, I'd like to have a discussion amongst us all after, after we, we, we hear from Raj about how we're going to accelerate and crowd in uh, the private sector and how we're going to get governments more involved. But Raj, you're president of the Rockefeller Foundation and also a very distinguished former head of the USAID, spending about $20 billion a year doing this. So um, I'm fascinated to learn from you how your previous experience has turned into this extraordinary collaboration and why that philanthropy is particularly uh, key to this. Uh, well, well, thank you. I, I'd say, you know, there are two lessons that I take away from those past experiences that have informed this. But frankly, they're both crystallized by core values that the IKEA Foundation has uh, that they've asked us to promulgate through this collaboration. Wow. The first is simplicity, right? We've all been to an IKEA, and part of <laughs> the success, I think, is there's a sense of simplicity. And very simply put, this effort is about making sure the grand fight to save our planet lifts up and includes everyone, including the most vulnerable. And that's why we know we're going to stand with the refugees that Per just mentioned. We know we're going to help uh, the families and girls that Rebecca mentioned. Andrew knows and has been an instigator of the climate fight for a long time um, and knows that this fight only succeeds if it's just, and it's only just if it captures and accelerates and delivers on the hopes and aspirations of the 3.6 billion people that live consuming less than 1,000 kilowatt hours uh, of, of power per capita uh, around the world, while people in industrial nations like OECD economies consume eight times that on average. And I'm an American, and we consume probably 12 times that. So it's not, a, you just can't have a, a grand fight to save the planet if, it, if the cost of it is keeping billions of people uh, trapped below a level where they can turn their productivity into real improvements in their life and their real hopes for their children. So that's, that's our purpose. Uh, the second value is togetherness. And yep. I love the way our IKEA colleagues say that uh, because it forces us to say, well, what are we learning from each other and how are we treating each other? And the truth is, Andrew, when, when he jumped into this and said, well, if we're going to do this, this can't just be one of many platforms that are out there. This has to be the platform. We have to have <laughs> everyone involved. We have to listen to everyone. And even if we have to adapt this or that, it only works if we're all in a, a common, uh, we're all at a common table. And that means, uh, you know, we have to listen to ministers when they explain why decommissioning coal is hard when they're trying to provide productive baseloads to industries and waiting for, uh, you know, a compensatory renewable energy project that might take years and years and years. We have to really help them do both things together. It's why we have to listen to entrepreneurs that are building out the microgrids that uh, Rebecca mentioned when they say, gosh, I need a small subsidy to get this thing really going and to build uh, thousands of these instead of just a few hundred. 
and we have to help them get those subsidies. We just have to listen and learn from everyone and uh, understand that we'll only be able to go faster, as Andrew points out, if we go together. And frankly, the institutions we are all a part of are usually not geared to partner in that way. We're usually rewarded for doing our own thing, talking to our own boards, responding to our own employees, serving our own grantees, whatever, whatever it is. So I just want to thank uh, Rebecca, Perrin, and Andrew for kind of having the courage to break out and try something new. And we're going to try to embody togetherness as we go forward. Well, that also deserves a big round of applause. Embody togetherness, uh, if I can quote IKEA for the many people. <laughs> okay, so look, just a discussion now, really, and I would invite anyone to jump in with the proviso that you've got to grab a mic. Um, how are we really going to crowd in um, governments, development banks, the private sector. I mean, there's something completely new going on here, right? Rather than little spots of philanthropy occurring in a kind of eclectic way, this is turning into like a formal system with philanthropy at the front of the arrow. Can, can somebody talk about how that, that structure's gonna unravel, well, no, that's not the right word, how that structure's <laughs> gonna build, how that structure's gonna build uh, and scale. That's the word, scale. Andrew. Well, look, there's good news and bad news. The good news was yesterday. Um, one, what was it? One hundred and thirty trillion dollars of assets that are committed to move towards net zero by 2050. Um, what your one? And by the way, uh, outrage and optimism is the podcast you all must oh, listen to oh, every I'm week. Sure. So let's be crystal clear about that. Um, and your wonderful co-host, Christiana Figueres, talks about this great wall, great wall of finance. So get inside the head now of, you know, the person who runs Bank of America or the person who runs the large hedge funds or the person who runs the insurance companies. Every year that passes, they're going to be looking for investments that have less carbon emissions from them. And they better get on with it pretty quickly. That's the, that's the good news. They are actively going to be looking for the kind of investments that we want to finance. And by the way, in the Global Energy Alliance, we'll be financing renewable energy, but we'll also be financing the decommissioning of coal. Yes. And that's pretty exciting, isn't it? They'll be looking for those investments. That's the good news. The bad news is that as of today, a tiny percentage of those monies will go to the developing and the emerging world. Yesterday, Larry Fink said, look, you know, I might be managing, what is it, $8 trillion? Ten, ten. $10, $10 trillion. Got to be honest, um, it, it's, it's, it's not going to the emerging and developing world for the most part. And then the question is, why not? And the reason is what we talked about before. Um, there's the enabling environment. There's the lack of, um, lack of a plan often. And by the way, it's not just in those countries they don't have a plan. And most rich countries also don't have a very coherent plan. But because here you've got all the legal and the regulatory, you actually, it's much safer to make investments in rich countries right. than it is in, in some of the countries we're working in. So, so that's what this is all about. It is about policy and politics plan. It's about then these financial institutions need to engage at scale. But of course, the whole point is 
in many of the things that Raj was, well, all three of you were talking about, actually they are not large scale. So you have to cluster them together. You have to make them into investable groups. We had a, a fantastic discussion last week um, uh, with, with your technical team on, um, on how do you electrify the Democratic Republic of Congo when, when what, 80% of the population live at least 300 miles from, from the nearest transmission line. I'm not sure those numbers are exactly right. What do you do? Well, obviously you think about distributed renewable. Yeah, well, that's hard work, isn't it? If you do them one by one. Suppose you came up with a model and you could do 25 cities over the next eight years. 25 cities, each of them, and Ashvin is there who's the the father or the grandfather of some of these great ideas, by the way. Um, suppose you did a metro grid for 25 cities. What would it look like? Suppose you then play this through and you ask, okay, you be the financier sitting in New York, you be the World Bank, you be the leading um, you know, a technical advisor from the World Resource Institute, you be that, what do you need to make that happen? That's what it's about. And the first thing you have to do is get these guys all to work together. We had this one, we had this very funny, I, I, I should be careful how I say this, but very funny experience when we were sitting with some of our potential partners and somebody was saying from one of these big organizations was saying, look, don't worry, there are already plans. I mean, in Africa, all the countries have plans. And Damilola, who knows a lot about Africa, she's head of Sustainable Energy for All, which co-sponsors this building. She said, look, I've been working in Nigeria in charge of energy for a long time. She said, actually, there aren't coherent plans. In my country, Nigeria, there are 29 plans, and each international agency has a deal with the government of their own plan, and none of them add up to anything. So that's the starting point. So it's a, it's a, it, there's no silver bullets here. It's a jigsaw puzzle, and the purpose here is to put the pieces together at the right time in a coherent way. Okay, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> Would anyone else like to have a little word about like the, the, the policy environment or how we're going to crowd in or how that pipeline gets built? Well, I'll just add, I think there's a, there's a yearning for people to see things that are practical, that work, and invest in their growth. So, you know, in some, some parts of this project are focused on distributed renewable uh, electrification. In India, we've been serving about 500,000 customers through these rural mini-grids. And we have data that shows they pay their bills 97 plus percent of the time. They, they sustain these enterprises. They use the power they draw down to create jobs and grow businesses and turn the lights on, and it transforms lives. And based on that data, which took years and years to develop, Tata Power came in and said, well, if it works that well in a few cases, let's build 10,000 of these and reach 100 million people, reach 10 million people and transform lives at a much greater scale. And that's another articulation of what Andrew said about the DRC and what we're going to try to replicate in place after place, which is results, scale, investment. Great. And then just a quick thought from me um, on, on crowding in finance. I think we tend to, the conversation revolves around energy finance. And I just wanted to bring up the fact that, especially in Africa, there are some really interesting things happening in the nexuses between energy and, say, for instance, agriculture. Um, and so in the agriculture space right now, agriculture is sort of the largest economic driver on the continent, right? Some 60 plus percentage of, 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 the, of the labor market is, is in agriculture. 
agriculture, less than 2% of electricity use comes from agriculture. Less than 5% of lands across the continent are actually um, you know, irrigated. And so thinking about not just, again, this comes back to when we think about electrification, what do we mean by electrification? It's really not just that household level. There's so much going on in sort of these nexus areas and productive use areas. Um, you've got hundreds now. Hun just in the five years that I have been living in Nairobi, there are so many companies that have now sort of sprung up in these spaces that are doing everything from honey processing, oil processing, oil pressing, um, egg incubation, ice freezing, fish, fish drying, fruit drying. So there's a lot that's happening that I think can also be part of this conversation that's about delivering energy access and productivity together to, to Andrew's point about sort of, you know, an, an ecosystems and a whole systems approach to, to solving problems. So the Global Energy Alliance building capacity linking and, and essentially a, a enabling and accelerating. Is that about right? Uh, exactly, and we're going to take a country-based um, approach, and we actually also put out the, what, what with a simple word I call a call for proposal. We call it something more sophisticated, but that's what it is, yeah, partnership, call for partnership. So, so uh, we're going to work with the countries and, and the communities where we really see a real interest of, of, of making a change and working with the alliance to actually bring all these partners together and, and scale up at, at, at the big level. And I think that's going to be very interesting to see what kind of response we get from the different countries now and, and who is coming forward. What makes me very excited when I go to the countries is not only the interest from the government, and we had several government representatives even at our launch a couple of days ago, but, but also the, the many really um, smart young people, smart young businesses that are thriving in these markets. So it's not like we have to come down and tell them how to do this. We can, we have to do something to leverage finance and make access to capital. I think uh, in many of these countries, you have a, such a thriving business in, in renewable energy, and that business will just take off when we give them the opportunity to do that. So what we can do, which is sort of unique in this alliance, is that we have a good amount of philanthropic capital. And you know, the good thing about philanthropy is that we can take big risks. We can take risks and we can afford to fail because we learn from the failure and then we go on and do it better next time. And that's the kind of risk taking that doesn't exist with many of these other institutions. So if we can spend some of our investment in developing the projects to a level where they are investable and then maybe de-risk some of those investments in, in different ways with different models, we can actually get much more capital to come to that market to build and accelerate the development of access to renewable energy in a way that otherwise wouldn't have happened. And I think that's one of the unique features of, of this alliance and the, the three partners who have come together, who I hope will be, be also joined by other partners in, in, in the years to come. You know, it's so inspiring to consider this an agricultural metaphor, if I may. There's, there's a need, you know, to grow, um, and there's little, little places all this water's needed, and I think you're putting together the plumbing, you're putting together the plumbing, and as Andrew pointed out, it's connected to a $130 trillion tank of water. So uh, on that bombshell, I'm going to hand over to Tom. Well, I mean, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been such an inspiring conversation. We really appreciate it. And I love what you said about togetherness and collaboration, right? And it's just fantastic. Those are two principles. This is a highly complex area you're all going into, and it's defeated us in some ways in the past, but the togetherness and the deep collaboration are really the keys. I'd like to invite you to just close, if I may, by offering us 
one thing each that you are both outraged by and optimistic about here, day four of COP. Andrew. It's, it's in our contract, we have to ask. <laughs> I am outraged by the fact that of the, what, 150 odd new updated NDCs, only about less than 100 show real improvements in ambition. Um, I am profoundly optimistic about what we've heard in the last three days. And I heard you earlier, Tom, talk about how sort of there's a, there's a bit of an inflection point going on here right now, how incredibly exciting it was to hear from the private sector, the financial sector, from civil society, and indeed from governments as well. And we need all hands on deck. Uh, I, I'm outraged by the fact that so many years after Paris, we're still on track for a temperature rise of at least 2.7 degrees Celsius, despite the commitments and the discussion and the political agreements and the progress. And I'm optimistic uh, because everyone I meet here seems, uh, and this is my first cop, just Aww. seems obsessed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate that. Uh, just seems obsessed with uh, both saving our planet, uh, but doing it in a way that, that lifts up everybody. There's a, there's a spirit of both a commitment to climate and fundamentally a, a commitment to justice uh, that seems to just be fully uh, to go hand in hand, which I think is the the secret to success in the future. That's great. Yeah. In a similar vein, I think I'm outraged by the fact that this many years after Paris, that the production gap is projected to still be so big. Even with all of these commitments, we're still on track to be producing in 2030 twice as much fossil fuel as we need to be for the 1.5 degree pathway. So I'm a bit outraged about that still. But I think I'm optimistic about the fact that, you know, conversations like just transition, conversations about adaptation, conversations about loss and damage and so on are actually now mainstream conversations. They're not where they need to be yet, but we're able to talk about, we have entire pavilions about these, about these spaces now. So I'm, I'm optimistic about the fact that the conversation is expanding and headed where it needs to go. I think I'm mostly outraged by the fact that um, I belong to this kind of generation, which is the first generation that actually got to really feel the real impact of climate change. And we're the last generation to be able to do something about it. And it's taken us so long to get there. And that's outrageous. And I'm glad I'm in this now. I'm glad I'm at my first COP too. Oh. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> but it's outrageous that it's taken us so long to do this seriously. I mean, people have warned us for 35, 40 years that this is happening. And it's only now that we are really taking this seriously and doing something about it. What makes me optimistic is whenever I get to go into all the countries where we operate. And it's been a while without that, and I miss it terribly. But when I go to those countries and I see these entrepreneurs, these young entrepreneurs, the, the, the small businesses, the, the great ideas, the young people who come to me and said, I, we have this idea, can we do this? Do you want to fund this? Can we do this? Then I just get very optimistic. But it's so, there's so much ingenuity out there. There's so much good, many good ideas. There's so much energy among young people to actually make a difference and, and turn their country into a country that can thrive and develop like, like other countries in the world. So that makes me very optimistic. In a, I'm, I'm so looking forward to getting back in and get some of that positive feeling again, which we can do now that the pandemic is uh, not under control, but it's in a better control than it was a, a, a year ago. Yikes. 
Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you all so much. I'm delighted that two of you have come to a COP for the first time. To me, that's an indicator, actually, <laughs> that the COPs are kind of on your level. Raj, I hope you can revisit your 2.7 degrees statement at the end of this two weeks. I hope it will be improved. Thank you all so much for joining us. Paul, great job. We'll get back to Christiana. Can you get the job? Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Five, four, three, two, one. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism live. Thank you for listening. My name's Clay. I'm the producer of the show. And it sounds like I'm at COP26 in the back of the room. I'm not. But that's the magic of podcasting. Speaking of magic, I have some people to thank for making this event possible. Thank you so much to Al and Isabel and the team from Sustainable Energy for All for throwing this event and making it possible. And thank you to Lotika Meta and Petra Hans at the IKEA Foundation as well. Thanks to Fiona McRaith and our friends at the Bezos Earth Fund and the Rockefeller Foundation for making it possible for us to bring this episode to our audience. That's you. So it's been a week. I have one big announcement. Really exciting. We at Outrage and Optimism have partnered with the team at Blinkist to create the Outrage and Optimism shortcast. I know what you're thinking. Clay, I know what a podcast is, but what is a shortcast? A shortcast, and specifically an Outrage and Optimism shortcast, is a 15-minute or so version of one of the podcast episodes we've made, curated and crafted to cover just the key ideas of that episode. So you probably have a friend who you'd like to talk about climate change with, or you know who would like our show, or you want to share an idea from one of our shows, but your friend's really busy, so they might only have 15 minutes to listen to something. This is for them. You can get them started with some of these shortcasts that we've made. The project launched today on Blinkist's website. Link to that in the show notes. It's Blinkist.com slash Outrage Optimism. Go check it out. Okay, thank you to everyone who was on the show. I know Tom already mentioned everyone, but I've got the socials of all of our guests in the show notes for you. So you can go connect with them, make the world a better place together. But, you know, I was thinking about it. Maybe you should wait to message them till like after COP. I've been seeing people on Twitter sharing that their DMs are full, their inboxes are a nightmare right now. So here's my strategy for you. Spend the next week or two giving like a like, a retweet or two, you know, a follow, and then slide in the DMs after that. Actually, I should check with Sophie about this strategy to see if it's even good or not. But speaking of Sophie, great news. Today on Instagram, the Global Optimism account hit 10,000 followers. So yes, thank you for following us and commenting and DMing us. And shout out to our digital communications coordinator, Sophie. Sophie, you did it. Okay, thank you for listening. <laughs> what a week, right? This has been a great episode. So much fun. Did you all enjoy it? Send us a tweet or a message at Global Optimism. Let us know what you thought of today's live episode. Should we do more like this? Let us know. Okay, cool. Next week, more exciting things to come from COP. See you back here for week two. Bye.